Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Uh, recently, family and friends were gathered together, and um, my brother-in-law, Jimmy, who is a listener of Catholic Light, shout out to Jimmy Ruth, um, we were chatting about the show Gabby's Dollhouse, which with which you might be familiar, depending on if you have kids or grandkids or Netflix. Um, so the show's about this girl, Gabby, who's supposed to be about 12 years old. <clears throat> she has magical this magical headband with cat ears on it that allows her to shrink down to the size of a dollhouse and then interact with these <laughs> fictional talking cats. So it's cute. Um, has a real catchy theme song. Hey, Gabby. So, um, you know, we're chatting about Gabby's dollhouse. Our kids each watch the show. And Jimmy says, did you know that Gabby, the actress who plays Gabby in real life, is like 23, 24? And we're like, no way. About double the age of the, the character she's playing. So it brought me back to when I was in high school and I used to watch the show 90210. And... Um, after watching it and then being in high school, there there were moments where I felt kind of young or um, like I wasn't like a real high schooler. And I think in retrospect, at one point I realized, I'm like, oh, that's because I was comparing myself to, you know, Jason Priestley and Shannon Doherty and uh, who else was on the show? Brian Austin Green, who played Kelly, Jenny Garth, um, who were probably in their like early to mid 20s playing you know, anywhere from like 15 to 18-year-olds on the show. So I begin with this to say that oftentimes things are portrayed to us through literature, television, um, in a way that's a little misleading and then kind of sets our sights or expectations or our understanding of something at an unrealistic level or um, a wrong, a false level. So we continue to talk about marriage today, and I think of, um, you know, kind of like the hallmark rom-com phenom where, you know, there's like this prefab uh, script or prefab kind of formula where, you know, what is it, like local hometown girl who either works in a coffee shop or makes candles or does something else like really cute and crafty, uh, falls in love with big city guy who returns to his hometown and like they knew each other back in the day and they've gone their separate ways and now they're rekindling this romance and then, you know, right at the end, um, they kiss, all is right with the world and they sail off into the sunset. And uh, again, I remember thinking at some point in maybe high school, college, like, oh, I wonder what happens like in the next 15 minutes or the next like two and a half years where they're kind of settled in and, um, you know, little traits start to get annoying or, you know, idiosyncrasies maybe rub him or her the wrong way. Um, like how does one proceed? How, do, how does the movie, uh, how does the movie go on? And that's actually one of the reasons why I love, so I love The Office for, for many reasons. Um, but I love, there's two characters, Jim and Pam, who fall in love. Um, they end up getting married and having children. And this, like, like the culmination is maybe, what, like season four out of seven. So then you have another few seasons to see, like, the annoyances, the frustrations, the fights, the makeups, and really like the glory and deepening of their relationship as much as you can see that in a, you know, a, f a fictional uh, set of characters. 
So I think the rom-com uh, phenom, <laughs> rom-com phenom kind of sets up um, sets up a lot of people for uh, disappointment and unrealistic expectations. And also it kind of misses the point of, not kind of misses the point, really misses the point of the depth and beauty that comes through um, love, self-sacrificial love and marriage, what it could be and uh, to what it can lead, which as Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1641 says today, as we'll read on the second half of the episode, um, it provides, the sacrament of matrimony provides a grace to help one another attain holiness. So holiness is the the perfection of, of our being, what each of us was created to be. St. Therese beautifully says, perfection consists in being who God made you to be. So that will look different for each of us, and that will look different for each marriage. But we believe that in and through the sacrament of marriage, husband and wife receive the grace to become holy and to, if it's God's will, have children and educate and help them become holy as well. When uh, Shortly after Dan and I got engaged, a friend of mine who was married uh, maybe like five or six years at that point and um, had maybe two or three children, she said... um, you know, congrats on your engagement. It's so exciting. And then she said something that really stuck with me. She said, um, people will not tell you how difficult engagement is and how beautiful marriage is. So how difficult engagement can be and how beautiful marriage marriage can be. And um, again, I think the popular culture really like hypes up the engagement, you know, like making the registry and picking the dress and um, doing all these cute like kind of prom prosal proposal askings of like bridesmaids and groomsmen and flower girls and ring bearers um and then sometimes marriage is seen again by the popular culture as just kind of like hmm like settling into the the less exciting stage but this friend Emily said you know engagement can be hard because you're you're not you don't have the grace of the sacrament yet um but you're joining you're starting to join your lives more deeply in a more committed way um and that can be hard because you have to, you know, we'll probably have to work through through some things as you prepare for marriage. And then marriage, while it will have a lot of those like anticlimactic after the wedding day or the big fun reception, uh, anticlimactic moments of, as I've talked about before, kind of the mundane, the, the humdrum, the not so exciting. Um, but in and through those moments, we can experience real depth and beauty and grace and fulfillment. So praise God for that. So today we'll talk a little bit about the beauty and difficulty of marriage. We'll talk about how marriage is uh, unique in regarding the other sacraments, how it's different from the other sacraments. And then we'll end with just a little discussion of annulments and how annulments are not as the popular culture often misunderstands simply Catholic divorces, but there's something uh, fundamentally different from divorce. So we begin by talking about the form and matter of a sacrament. I don't know that we've talked about this yet, uh, but perhaps you're already familiar with with these terms. So the, the form of each of the seven sacraments are the words and actions that make the sacrament happen. And then the, the matter is the material present or the prerequisites needed for that sacrament to take place. So baptism might be the easiest. You know, we think of the the matter being the water being poured over the child or adult's head, the person who is being baptized, his or her head. And then the form 
are the words, is the words, are the words. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We can quickly go through the others. So confirmation, the form, excuse me, the matter is the chrism. And then the form is the bishop being say, saying, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Eucharist, the matter is bread and wine. The form are the words of institution. This is my body. This is my blood. Confession, the matter is... Uh, is actually the acts of the penitence. So f- experiencing contrition, making a confession, I'm sorry for X, Y, and Z, having a firm purpose of amendment, and then making reparation or doing penance. That's all the matter of the sacrament of confession. The form then uh, are the words that the priest says as he extends his hands and says, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. So we did baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, confession, anointing. Um, the matter is the oil. And then the form are the words through the holy anointing. May the Lord help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord strengthen you and raise you up. Holy orders. The matter is the laying on of hands of the man being ordained. And then the form is the prayer of consecration. In the sacrament of marriage, the form and matter are the same. So the the form of the sacrament of marriage, the matter of the sacrament of marriage, are the exchange of vows or the consent, the mutual offering and reception of the other. So I, Rebecca, take you, Daniel. Dan saying, I, Daniel, take you, Rebecca. We give our consent to one another. We receive the other and um, consent to being married, to coming together as one. So marriage is unique in that we we don't necessarily see something, um, hands being extended, chrism or oil, water being poured, but it is witnessing the vows, the consent of husband and wife giving to and receiving from the other. Also, the minister of the sacrament of marriage is is unique in terms of the other sacraments. So in baptism, it's a priest or a deacon who baptizes or a, a bishop can baptize. In confirmation, it's Typically, the bishop, sometimes a priest, can act in his stead to confirm those being confirmed. In confession, it's a priest. The Eucharist, it's a priest. Holy orders, it's the bishop. Anointing of the sick, only priests or bishops can extend the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. In marriage, it's the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, who extend confer the sacrament on one another. The priest or the deacon um, or the bishop simply stands as witness on behalf of the church of that sacrament. So the the priest, the bishop, the deacon does not confer marriage. It's the husband and wife who confers it on one another. And then the, the minister stands as witness to that sacrament. Paragraph 1627 of the Catechism says, the consent consists in a human act by which the partners mutually give themselves to each other. I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. This consent that binds the spouses to each other finds it f- its fulfillment in the two becoming one flesh. So that that first line, the consent consists in a human act. To be human is to have a rational intellect and a will. Uh, So a human act is to know something with one's intellect and then choose it with one's will. Paragraph 1625 says, the parties to a marriage covenant are a baptized man and woman, free to contract marriage, who freely express their consent. To be free means not being under constraint, and not being impeded by any natural or ecclesiastical law. So for the thing called marriage to take place, we need to have a baptized man and a baptized woman. Each 
person must be free to contract marriage and freely express consent. The catechism then says to be free means not being under constraint. So, um, you know, there's the kind of like stereotypical shotgun wedding image where, um, you know, man and woman get pregnant before they get married. Dad's holding uh, a shotgun behind the back of the man saying, like, marry my daughter, you know, make an honest woman out of this situation. So nobody's being forced into this union. Nobody's under constraint. And then secondly, um, neither man nor woman is impeded by any natural or ecclesiastical law. So he or she is not already married and therefore connected to someone else and unable to be connected to someone new um, or ecclesiastical law. He, you know, is a priest or... Um, is prohibited, he or she, or she, he or she is prohibited from marriage for some reason. Paragraph 1626 goes on to say, the church holds the exchange of consent between the spouses to be the indispensable element that quote unquote makes the marriage. If consent is lacking, there is no marriage. Um, I think this speaks really beautifully to the the dignity and the, the beauty, the awesomeness of human freedom. So we are beings with intellect and free will, and we each have the power to make something as paragraph 1638 says, perpetual and exclusive come into existence. We're then given special gifts, quote unquote, special gifts through the sacrament and the bond of marriage, the grace proper to the sacrament, as paragraph 1641 says. So it's just a reminder that we we as human beings, so as as human beings, our, our lives are a gift. God gives us these these incredible powers, and that's one of which is the the power to say yes or no to him, to accept or reject him in this life with him. Um, we have the power to do or not do something. And in this case, we have the power to bring something into existence or not, uh, which is is really wild because I think Christianity is often portrayed, well, who was it? Karl Marx said that Christianity is the op- opiate of the masses. So oftentimes it's seen as this thing that kind of lulls us into this this quiet existence where we just, mm-hmm, yes, okay. We just kind of like blindly follow this God above and beyond us. But no, he imbues us with this this freedom to act or not act, to say yes or no, and to here with, as we discuss marriage, bring something into existence that would not be in existence were it not for our consent, our freely acting and choosing, knowing and choosing, uh, which is pretty incredible. So rather than being the opiate of the masses, it's it's really terrifying uh, the the power that that God's given us sometimes if we we stop and think about it. So marriage is an awesome thing, as paragraph sixteen forty one says. By reason of their state and life and of their order, Christian spouses have their own special gifts in the people of God. This grace proper to the sacrament of matrimony is intended to perfect the couple's love and to strengthen their indissoluble unity. By this grace, they help one another to attain holiness in their married life and in welcoming and educating their children. So what an awesome thing, what an awesome opportunity. But also, um, how difficult to be married to, especially post-original sin, be married to, to be an imperfect human being, married to another imperfect human being, and share life very up close and personally with another and then to potentially welcome these other little imperfect human beings uh, into one's one's marriage and family and then raise them together. Um, one time my sister and I were talking about the concept of soulmates and uh, she said, you know what, I think like anyone 
could just marry somebody else and whether or not, you know, they're super compatible, not really that compatible, soulmates, if soulmates is a thing or not, just to share your life with another person automatically makes you or has the potential to make you less selfish, less self-absorbed, um, to think of the other, to, you know, flex uh, when it comes to how you want to do things and not do things and really, you know, perfect a person by sharing one's life with another. Dean and I, as as many married couples do, you know, look back and giggle over some of our initial arguments. And there's this one day, I, I joke that before Dan and I got married, we each thought like, oh my gosh, we are just like really easygoing, happy-go-lucky, uh, not very particular people. And, you know, as we got married and, and lived together, shared our lives together, we realized uh, we're each very particular, and maybe we're not the most awesome people in the world. And what a grace, what a blessing uh, to realize the the truth, the reality, and then to grow together. We laugh about this one argument we had early on where, um, you know, I was annoyed about something little where D- I think Dan had each poured us a glass of wine and then left the empty wine bottle on the the counter. And I was like, mm, recycling bins right there. Like, let's just move it a couple, couple inches over. And uh, so as we started to argue and then the argument escalated, he thanked me at one point for being a little bit patient with him. And I was like, a little bit patient. You want to say patience? So uh, what a grace to, um, to see, you know, how, how uh, imperfect and, and selfish I am and to, by the grace of God and the grace of the sacrament, grow in that, uh, grow away from that and, and grow into the woman, God willing, God, God intends me to be. And then how funny and what a continued blessing to see each of our traits now in our children in different ways. So Peter recently turned three and I asked him, Peter, ahead of his birthday, Peter, what kind of birthday cake would you like? And without skipping a beat, he says, I would like a chocolate cake with blue frosting and then a Santa on top going like this. And he makes this motion where like one hand's in the air, the other's on his hip. I was like, wow, who's particular? You're particular? I'm particular? I'm not particular. Are you particular? <laughs> so to see some of our traits in our children are like, oh, well, <laughs> what a gift. What a grace. So marriage is this this beautiful thing by which we, through our own free will, join our lives to another and then oftentimes uh, have the opportunity to to welcome more lives into that union, into our marriage and family. Um, but it's also, as we know, many of us firsthand or we see in the, the lives of our loved ones, our family and friends, um, it can be very difficult. And so God gives us, makes this one of the sacraments through which he, he gives us the grace to persevere um, and to to grow in holiness, as the Catechism says, to to be perfected uh, by God through and with this other person. If consent is lacking, uh, paragraph sixteen twenty six says there is no marriage, and then paragraph sixteen twenty eight says if this freedom is lacking, the marriage is invalid. So I just want to end the first half of this episode um, by saying a few words on the difference between annulment and uh, divorce. So as I said in the beginning, uh, a lot of people think of annulments as quote-unquote Catholic divorces. It's just the name given to divorce in the Catholic faith. Um, so there's this, this confusion in the popular understanding. The priest will often say as part of the marriage ceremony, what after after the couple has exchanged vows, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. So what, they, what the couple has created here through their consent, through their, their 
intellect and free will. They're knowing and choosing. The church cannot separate, divide, dissolve. Um, as paragraph 1640 says, the church does not have the power to contravene the disposition of divine wisdom. I think that speaks to or is kind of an echo of, of some paragraphs we've quoted in other parts of the catechism where the it's not that the church says like you can't get divorced but the church says like what what you and the lord have have put together have decided have created we we can't separate it's not it's not that we won't it's just that we can't separate what what you have now created or or put together what an annulment says then is what looked like a marriage what looked like consent and freedom adjoining a creation of something didn't actually take place because there was an impediment, something was in the way, or something was lacking. Perhaps one of the two spouses was not truly free, or perhaps man or woman did not know what, what he or she was, was saying, signing up for, and so there was an impediment, something was in the way, and so the, the union uh, did not happen, the consent did not take place, and therefore the, the marital bond did not happen. What I would do with my students when I taught this lesson is is hold up my two hands and say, when man and woman come together in the sacrament of marriage, they freely give their consent to give themselves to the other and then receive the other. And then I would, you know, join my two hands together, interlocking my fingers, and say, once that that consent is given, um, a bond is formed, witnessed by the priest or the deacon on behalf of the church, and then I would. With fingers interlocking, I would try to like, uh, like pull my hands apart and say, you know, when the when the minister says what God has joined, let no man put asunder. I would say, no one can separate that that bond or break apart that bond that has been formed. However, in the case of an annulment, and I would hold up my two hands, um, the fingers don't interlock. Something's in the way. Something prevents the interlocking of of the fingers on my two hands. And so there's there's this space in between my two hands um, so that a, a bond doesn't form. It, it, it looks like a marriage, um, in a lot of ways resembles a marriage, but something was in the way that prevented that bond from forming. And so when a couple then uh, comes before the church seeking an annulment, the church, through a process of interviews, investigation, um, says, did that bond form? And if it finds that it didn't, there was something in the way, and I hold up my two hands with a space in between, um, the church says, you're, you're free to now marry because you never were married in the first place. So something was in the way preventing that union. And so that union, that bond, that sacrament is, is null and void. That's where we get the, the term annulment from. Um, because it didn't actually, it looked like a marriage, but it didn't actually take place. And so you are free now to marry or, um, you know, free to say we, we didn't actually get married. Pope John Paul II, in his, his seminal work, uh, I should say one of his seminal works, he was such a prolific author, uh, The Theology of the Body talks about how love is, is free, total, fruitful, and faithful. So love is free. No one, as we just talked about, is no one is co coerced um, or forced into this consent, this union. It's total. So if we don't give of ourselves completely and we receive the other completely, then it's not love. Okay, if I if I just give part of myself to Dan or just receive part of himself, then I'm not. You can, you can't love 
someone in pieces or just give a partial love. That's not love. Um, it's faithful. So when Dan and I used to, to teach uh, marriage prep or pre-kina, we taught with this one couple where the, the husband would say, you know, can you imagine if, if I stood on the altar and said, I will be faithful to you 95% of the time. <laughs> okay, that's not, um, that's not love. And then it's fruitful. It's life-giving or it's open to life, whether or not children actually come into the marriage and family. It's open to, again, giving all of oneself, including one's fertility, and receiving the other um, in you know, his or her fertility. And so if, if any, of the, any of those four things, freedom, totality, faithfulness, or fruitfulness is lacking when one gives consent and receives the consent of the other, then a marriage does not take place. There's an impediment and therefore grounds for an annulment. Because we live in a, a time where so many things, but marriage especially, is so misunderstood and conflated with so many other things and so many other relationships. So think of the, um, you know, the love is love slogan, um, relationships between a man and a man, a woman and a woman, I don't know, uh, other relationships. Those are relationships. Those are things, but those are not marriage. So we call marriage a very specific thing, as as we quoted from the catechism before. It's, um, you know, a, a baptized man, a baptized woman come together free to contract marriage, and they freely express their consent. That's what marriage is. And so those other things are relationships, but they're not marriage. But we live in a time where... Um, you know, I think of my own children, they they grow up, it, it's already confusing for me, but my children are now growing up, breathing in this atmosphere that uh, just, whether subtly or very overtly, is, is so confusing to understanding um, what love is, what marriage is. And so when it comes to annulment, so many people enter into marriage not understanding what marriage truly is, that they don't know, he or she does not know what what he or she is truly consenting to, saying yes to. And so what the, the church is finding is that there's there's so many grounds for annulment um, because there's such a misunderstanding of, of marriage and so many couples don't, don't understand what they're consenting to. So uh, let's end the first half of this episode like we did when we, we went through holy orders and prayed for our priests. Let's pray for all marriages and families that, uh, especially in this time where, where marriage is often not supported, um, where it's, it's difficult to, to persevere in marriage. Um, let's pray for married couples, for marriages and families, and for their protection and guidance, uh, and for the, the sanctification of, of, all, of all married couples pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the seven sacraments. We thank you for today, the sacrament of holy matrimony. We pray for all married couples, for the grace to persevere, uh, to allow you to work in and through them, to sanctify them and their children. And we pray for all couples who are discerning marriage, perhaps those who are engaged in preparing for marriage. We pray for blessings upon them and the strength to be and become the men and women you created them to be and allow you to work in and through their marriage and family life. We thank you for loving us, for having a plan for each and every one of us, and we pray that your will be done in us and through us from now until forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll now take a brief break in the return on the second side to, re- to uh, read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1621 through 1654. Thanks for sticking around. 
You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1621 through 1654. The Celebration of Marriage. In the Latin rite, the celebration of marriage between two Catholic faithful normally takes place during Holy Mass because of the connection of all the sacraments with the Paschal Mystery of Christ. In the Eucharist, the memorial of the New Covenant is realized, the new covenant in which Christ has united himself forever to the Church, his beloved bride for whom he gave himself up. It is therefore fitting that the spouses should seal their consent to give themselves to each other through the offering of their own lives by uniting it to the offering of Christ for his church, made present in the Eucharistic sacrifice, and by receiving the Eucharist so that communicating in the same body and the same blood of Christ, they may form but one body in Christ. Inasmuch as it is a sacramental action of sanctification, the liturgical celebration of marriage must be per se valid, worthy, and fruitful. It is therefore appropriate for the bride and groom to prepare themselves for the celebration of their marriage by receiving the sacrament of penance. According to the Latin tradition, the spouses, as ministers of Christ's grace, mutually confer upon each other the sacrament of matrimony by expressing their consent before the church. In the traditions of the Eastern churches, the priests, bishops, or presbyters are witnesses to the mutual consent given by the spouses, but for the validity of the sacrament, their blessing is also necessary. The various liturgies abound in prayers of blessing and epiclesis, asking God's grace and blessing on the new couple, especially the bride. In the epiclesis of the sacrament, the spouses receive the Holy Spirit as the communion of love of Christ and the church. The Holy Spirit is the seal of their covenant, the ever-available source of their love, and the strength to renew their fidelity. Matrimonial Consent The parties to a marriage covenant are a baptized man and woman, free to contract marriage, who freely express their consent. To be free means not being under constraint, not impeded by any natural or ecclesiastical law. The Church holds the exchange of consent between the spouses to be the indispensable element that makes the marriage. If consent is lacking, there is no marriage. The consent consists in a human act by which the partners mutually give themselves to each other. I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. This consent that binds the spouses to each other finds its fulfillment in the two becoming one flesh. The consent must be an act of the will of each of the contracting parties, free of coercion or grave external fear. No human power can substitute for this consent. If this freedom is lacking, the marriage is invalid. For this reason, or for other reasons that render the marriage null and void, the Church, after an examination of the situation by the competent ecclesiastical tribunal, can declare the nullity of a marriage, for example, that the marriage never existed. In this case, the contracting parties are free to marry, provided the natural obligations of a previous union are discharged. The priest or deacon who assists at the celebration of a marriage receives the consent of the spouses in the name of the Church and gives the blessing of the Church. The presence of the church's minister and also of the witnesses visibly expresses the fact that marriage is an ecclesial reality. This is the reason why the church normally requires that the faithful contract marriage according to the ecclesiastical form. Several reasons converge to explain this requirement. Sacramental marriage is a liturgical act. It is therefore appropriate that it should be celebrated in the public liturgy of the church. Marriage introduces one into an ecclesial order and creates rights and duties in the church between the spouses and towards their children. Since marriage is a state of life in the church, certainty about it is necessary, hence the obligation to have witnesses. 
The public character of the consent protects the I do once given and helps the spouses remain faithful to it. So that the I do of the spouses may be a free and responsible act, and so that the marriage covenant may have solid and lasting human and Christian foundations, preparation for marriage is of prime importance. The example and teaching given by parents and families remain the special form of this preparation. The role of pastors and of the Christian community as the family of God is indispensable for the transmission of the human and Christian values of marriage and family, and much more so in our era when many young people experience broken homes which no longer sufficiently assure this initiation. It is imperative to give suitable and timely instruction to young people, above all in the heart of their own families, about the dignity of married love, its role and its exercise, so that, having learned the value of chastity, they will be able at a suitable age to engage in honorable courtship and enter upon a marriage of their own. Mixed Marriages and Disparity of Cult In many countries, the situation of a mixed marriage, marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic, often arises. It requires particular attention on the part of couples and their pastors. A case of marriage with disparity of cult between a Catholic and a non-baptized person requires even greater circumspection. Difference of confession between the spouses does not constitute an insurmountable obstacle for marriage when they succeed in placing in common what they have received from their respective communities and learn from each other the way in which each lives in fidelity to Christ. But the difficulties of mixed marriages must not be underestimated. They arise from the fact that the separation of Christians has not yet been overcome. The spouses risk experiencing the tragedy of Christian disunity even in the heart of their own home. Disparity of cult can further aggravate these difficulties. Differences about faith and the very notion of marriage, but also different religious mentalities, can become sources of tension in marriage, especially as regards the education of children. The temptation to religious indifference can then arise. According to the law in force in the Latin Church, a mixed marriage needs for lyceity the express permission of ecclesiastical authority. In case of disparity of cult, an express dispensation from this impediment is required for the validity of the marriage. This permission or dispensation presupposes that both parties know and do not exclude the essential ends and properties of marriage, and furthermore, that the Catholic party confirms the obligations, which have been made known to the non-Catholic party, of preserving his or her own faith and ensuring the baptism and education of the children in the Catholic faith. Through ecumenical dialogue, Christian communities in many regions have been able to put into effect a common pastoral practice for mixed marriages. Its task is to help such couples live out their particular situation in the light of faith, overcome the tensions between the couple's obligations to each other and towards their ecclesial communities, and encourage the flowering of what is, in, what is common to them in faith and respect for what separates them. In marriages with disparity of cult, the Catholic spouse has a particular task, for the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is consecrated through her husband. It is a great joy for the Christian spouse and for the church if this consecration should lead to the free conversion of the other spouse to the Christian faith. Sincere married love, the humble and patient practice of the family virtues, and perseverance in prayer can prepare the non-believing spouse to accept the grace of conversion. The Effects of the Sacrament of Matrimony From a valid marriage arises a bond between the spouses by its very nature is perpetual and exclusive. Furthermore, in a Christian marriage, the spouses are strengthened and, as it were, consecrated for the duties and the dignity of their state by a special sacrament. The marriage bond. 
The consent by which the spouses mutually give and receive one another is sealed by God himself. From their covenant arises an institution confirmed by the divine law, even in the eyes of society. The covenant between the spouses is integrated into God's covenant with man. Authentic married love is caught up into divine love. Thus, the marriage bond has been established by God himself in such a way that a marriage concluded and consummated between baptized persons can never be dissolved. This bond, which results from the free human act of the spouses and their consummation of the marriage, is a reality, henceforth irrevocable, and gives rise to a covenant guaranteed by God's fidelity. The church does not have the power to contravene this disposition of divine wisdom. The Grace of the Sacrament of Matrimony By reason of their state in life and of their order, Christian spouses have their own special gifts in the people of God. This grace proper to the sacrament of matrimony is intended to perfect the couple's love and to strengthen their indissoluble unity. By this grace, they help one another to attain holiness in their married life and in welcoming and educating their children. Christ is the source of this grace. Just as of old, God encountered his people with a covenant of love and fidelity. So our Savior, the spouse of the church, now encounters Christian spouses through the sacrament of matrimony. Christ dwells with them, gives them the strength to take up their crosses and so follow him, to rise again after they have fallen, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, and to love one another with supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. In the joys of their love and family life, he gives them here on earth a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. How can I ever express the happiness of a marriage joined by the church, strengthened by an offering, sealed by a blessing, announced by angels, and ratified by the Father? How wonderful the bond between two believers, now one in hope, one in desire, one in discipline, one in the same service. They are both children of one Father and servants of the same Master, undivided in spirit and flesh, truly two in one flesh. Where the flesh is one, one also is the Spirit. That was said by Tertullian. The goods and requirements of conjugal love. Conjugal love involves a totality in which all the elements of the person enter, appeal of the body and instinct, power of feeling and affectivity, aspiration of the spirit and of will. It aims at a deeply personal unity, a unity that beyond union in one flesh leads to forming one heart and soul. It demands indissolubility and faithfulness in definitive mutual giving, and it is open to fertility. In a word, it is a question of the normal characteristics of all natural conjugal love, but with a new significance which not only purifies and strengthens them, but raises them to the extent of making them the expression of specifically Christian values. The Unity and Indissolubility of Marriage The love of the spouses requires, of its very nature, the unity and indissolubility of the spouse's community of persons, which embraces their entire life. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are called to grow continually in their communion through day-to-day fidelity to their marriage promise of total mutual self-giving. This human communion is confirmed, purified, and completed by communion in Jesus Christ, given through the sacrament of matrimony. It is deepened by lives of the common faith and by the Eucharist received together. The unity of marriage, distinctly recognized by our Lord, is made clear in the equal personal dignity which must be accorded to man and wife in mutual and unreserved affection. Polygamy is contrary to conjugal love, which is undivided and exclusive. The fidelity of conjugal love. By its very nature, conjugal love requires the inviolable fidelity of the spouses. 
This is a consequence of the gift of themselves which they make to each other. Love seeks to be definitive. It cannot be an arrangement until further notice. The intimate union of marriage as a mutual giving of two persons and the good of the children demand total fidelity from the spouses and require an unbreakable union between them. The deepest reason is found in the fidelity of God to his covenant and that of Christ to his church. Through the sacrament of matrimony, the spouses are enabled to represent this fidelity and witness to it. Through the sacrament, the indissolubility of marriage receives a new and deeper meaning. It can seem difficult, even impossible, to bind oneself for life to another human being. This makes it all the more important to proclaim the good news that God loves us with a definitive and irrevocable love, that married couples share in this love, that it supports and sustains them, and that by their own faithfulness they can be witnesses to God's faithful love. Spouses who with God's grace give this witness, often in very difficult conditions, deserve the gratitude and support of the ecclesial community. Yet there are some situations in which living together becomes practically impossible for a variety of reasons. In such cases, the church permits the physical separation of the couple and their living apart. The spouses do not cease to be husband and wife before God, and so are not free to contract a new union. In this difficult situation, the best solution would be, if possible, reconciliation. The Christian community is called to help these persons live out their situation in a Christian manner and in fidelity to their marriage bond, which remains indissoluble. Today, there are numerous Catholics in many countries who have recourse to civil divorce and contract new civil unions. Infidelity to the words of Jesus Christ, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The Church maintains that a new union cannot be recognized as valid if the first marriage was. If the divorced are remarried civilly, they find themselves in a situation that objectively contravenes God's law. Consequently, they cannot receive Eucharistic communion as long as this situation persists. For the same reason, they cannot exercise certain ecclesial responsibilities. Reconciliation through the sacrament of penance can be granted only to those who have repented for having violated the sign of the covenant and of fidelity to Christ, and who are committed to living in complete continence. Toward Christians who live in this situation and who often keep the faith and desire to bring up their children in a Christian manner, priests and the whole community must manifest an attentive solicitude so that they do not consider themselves separated from the church, in whose life they can and must participate as baptized persons. They should be encouraged to listen to the word of God, to attend the sacrifice of the Mass, to persevere in prayer, to contribute to works of charity and to community efforts for justice, to bring up their children in the Christian faith, to cultivate the spirit and practice of penance, and thus implore day by day God's grace. The Openness to Fertility By its very nature, the institution of marriage and married love is ordered to the procreation and education of the offspring, and it is in them that it finds its crowning glory. Children are the supreme gift of marriage and contribute greatly to the good of the parents themselves. God himself said, It is not good that man should be alone. And from the beginning he made them male and female, wishing to associate them in a special way in his own creative work. God blessed man and woman with the words, Be fruitful and multiply. Hence true married love and the whole structure of family life which results from it, without diminishment of the other ends of marriage, are directed to disposing the spouses to cooperate valiantly with the love of the Creator and Savior, who through them will increase and enrich his family from day to day. 
The fruitfulness of conjugal love extends to the fruits of the moral, spiritual, and supernatural life that parents hand on to their children by education. Parents are the principal and first educators of their children. In this sense, the fundamental task of marriage and family is to be at the service of life. Spouses to whom God has not granted children can nevertheless have a conjugal life full of meaning in both human and Christian terms. Their marriage can radiate a fruitfulness of charity, of hospitality, and of sacrifice. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast or on Facebook under Rebecca Doherty. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.